Some of you know that I have more than a passing interest in Scotland and Scotland's poets. Because one of the things that you know you hear in the States is that Scotland is a nation of poets. And so I came over here and I, I heard that, and then as I was exposed to how the Psalms have been treated in the Highlands in particular, and I wondered, did the love of poetry come from the love of Psalms, or did they love the Psalms because they love poetry? Now, I, I truly believe that Scottish poetry was here before the Psalms were. Because we know that a lot of people in Britain and in, in Scotland were converted before they brought the written word. In other words, it came with an oral gospel where you memorize scripture. And then that was one of the things when the Irish came, they brought written scripture. They brought the ability to write. Now, one of the things in studying is you see how particularly in the 1800s you had Scottish poets who standardized the folk poetry, the poetry that had no known author, that famous Scottish poet Anonymous. And they standardized it and they published it. Now, that didn't happen just with poetry, that happened with church music. Because when you publish something, you put it in writing, you standardize it. Now, why do I bring this up? Is because Scottish poetry, I've discovered, is where the identity of what Scotland is is best expressed. And one of the things that I've learned is that as Scotland changes and becomes more secular, its poetry is changing. Now, I, I raise this about the history and the effect of poetry because what we are going to look at today, this poem, this psalm from Zechariah, and next week we're going to go back and we're going to look at a poem and a psalm that Mary gave in chapter 1 of Luke. Because these people, for their whole lives, one, they would have memorized it. I mean, we look at 150 Psalms and we go, woo! We don't understand the ability of memory to remember things. And Psalms was where the Hebrew children began their memory work, their school, in who God was. And they would recite them at home. They would certainly sing them and recite them when they came together on the week, on the Sabbath. And so they breathed the Psalms. It was part of what they were. They knew them. And so here we are almost a thousand years later. And Zechariah has this baby boy that he'd been promised that he'd been introduced to by this angel. And... He is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people 
That's the beginning of a psalm. It's part of the way they spoke and the way they thought. They, they expressed their most intimate things in poetic language. Now, we have to remember that Dr. Luke is the one who is writing this out for us. And he says at the beginning of, of Luke is that I went around because he was not an eyewitness. I went around and I talked to people. One of the things about poems in, and psalms in the Hebrew mind in the first century, it was the way they passed it on. Because poetry was often the way they passed on the tales, the language, all of that, the worship of God. And so this is, in my mind, one of the most powerful and accurate memories that someone had about what was going on in chapter 1 in Luke, in this introduction of, of Jesus Christ, of spending the time. And here, spending the time, and when you look at it and you read it, in my Bible, the whole thing is one column long. It's written, it's printed in my Bible in poetic form. At one point in the week, I said, you know, I, I'm going to feel like a high school English teacher this week because there are 27 commas or things like that that divide it up. So you have to look at it and pay attention. Who does he refer to? Who is the you? To make sure you connect all the wonderful words. And then on top of that, on top of all of that, what you see is what modern internet culture would call a mashup, a combining together of all of these biblical ideas from the Old Testament without quoting a verse. But they give the ideas. They said, this is what God's doing. And so you have this old man. And if, if I mean... My one sentence that I want to remember this passage about, that we're going to expand a lot, but redemption, the forgiveness of sins, leads us from fear to peace. When you look at the words in here and you see how modern people need to hear this message. We'll start at the end of the sentence. How many people in this world really need peace? When we look at anxiety and stress and loneliness, how many people need peace in their lives? Next, going back. We're moving from fear to peace. Fear describes what a lot of people experience and live with. They say fear is what divides people. This passage talks about and describes how God can give us a gift not to be afraid so that we can live in peace. Now, there's a lot in between that that we're going to look at that. 
But if I were a modern person, if I were someone who's out there living today, and all of a sudden somebody says, I can teach you from the Word of God, from the gift of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, how to move from fear to peace. How many people would want to hear that? How many people would want to know that they could be at peace? Remember last week I said a lot of people were going to be disappointed on Friday? A lot of people were disappointed on Friday. But we can offer them moving from fear to peace and we move back because, see, this is, this is a language people have a hard time with. We're going to look at what it means to have your sins forgiven. Because that's at the heart of this word that the passage uses, redemption. Now, if you go and you look at the word that is used for redemption... And it's a good translation. It's a good word. I mean, when you redeem something, what do you do? You pay to get it back. I have to be careful about my use of history, but Richard almost broke the kingdom because they had to pay a ransom to get the king back. See, One of the things that I know from all of my experience is that if I offer the word redemption to somebody, they're going to say, why do I need to be redeemed? What's wrong with me? Do you understand how sometimes in the words of Scripture, the words that God gives us, that they are going to be offensive and people are going to be defensive against them? And so if we look at this poem, this powerful psalm that Zechariah gives us, and he brings it up in the second verse, second line, not verse, line, where he visited and redeemed his people. People are going to say, well, what am I a slave to? And we say the Bible says to sin, but you can be forgiven of your sin because of the redemption in Jesus Christ. That lots of times the language of the Bible is a language that is offensive to our neighbors. Ransom was the way you got a slave back. Ransom is the way you paid a debt. Now, people are used to thinking of redeeming coupons and prizes and all of that. But to say that you need to be redeemed by God, that you need his redemption, raises the whole issue of is he there? See, in this this text, see, you have the issue of revelation, which we're going to look at in just a moment, and redemption of God's actions. But Zechariah starts off, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has this great praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, when we look at this passage, we see that the Holy Spirit 
through the prophets, prophesied of the Lord's covenant of mercy. Now, there's a lot of past sermons tied up in that, in that passage there. And remember who Luke is. Remember when the gospel of Luke was written. It was written after Pentecost, wasn't it? Because he's going to, in his second volume in Acts, tell us about the blessing. So now we see the activity of the Holy Spirit here at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus having to do with Revelation. When you look at verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, He was giving us the word of God, that God's word came through a man. Verse 70, and he, the Lord God of Israel, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. See, what he's saying is that when the prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit in the past and it was written down and carried forward, it's still the word of God. Again. That's troubling to a lot of modern people to believe that there is a God out there that can speak into the world, speak in a language that we understand. One of the things is, is relatively unique about Christianity is that it has a written text. But notice what he tells us, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Now I want you to hear his word order there. To show mercy promised. See, I think that's one of the things about these passages, whether you say it's this time of year or the passages that describe this time of year, and to show mercy promised to our fathers. How many people, when they think about Jesus Christ and John the Baptist and, and Scripture, do they think about mercy? How many people really need to experience mercy? Because they look at themselves and they say, I, I, I can't do it. They become so ashamed of themselves that they just hide behind a mask or a persona or something else. And to remember his holy covenant. I spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time looking at the covenant and God's promise which he expands on and says the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Do you see how he's bringing the fact that God has spoken and sworn and brought it together? These mercy that is promised has been promised and sold, not sold, but given to us in Scripture. God swore that he would be merciful. God swore through the covenant what he was going to do. And what the covenant promised... To me, that's the first postcard that's a Christmas card that's a, 
a pre-card or whatever you want to call about it, because it's, it's pointing us, it's getting us ready for Christmas. It's getting us ready for the birth of Christ. But please, don't let the word mercy, the mercy promised. When I think about the loneliness that people experience and that we hear described, how many of them need to know that there's mercy? Now, the second thing that I want us to look at after we've looked at the Holy Spirit is the central theme of redemption by visitation frees us to serve the Lord without fear. Now, I've, I've talked about redemption. But in this passage, you see it's redemption by visitation, that, that he's coming, that Christ comes into the world. He visits us. That's part of what it's all about. Look at that second line in verse 68. For he has visited and redeemed his people. You see, by the incarnation, by knowing that Jesus hasn't even been born yet, we have another three to six months, depending upon how you do the pregnancy calendar with the two women that are already been talked about. But see, in the mind of God, it's been accomplished. He's visited and he's redeemed. See, that's part of what Christmas is all about. That's what the incarnation, the birth of Christ is all about, is God keeping his promise to visit and to redeem us. That's why the incarnation and all the things, you know, the virgin birth. All of that is tied together with our salvation. And so the opening line, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. See, that's a merciful passage. That's a short, compact expression of God's love. But see, here's... here's when I read this and I studied it, it just, it just got into the root, rooted itself in my heart, I guess is what I want to say. At the end of 73, to grant us, and see, this is one of the things that I feel, you know, you feel like a high school English teacher is what I, what I call it. That dear person who divided up by verses didn't realize by the time it got to us sometimes that division was in the middle of a phrase with no, you know, no comma, no anything. It's just there, and it, we're supposed to read through it. And I encourage you, when you come to that, read through it. Read through in God's thoughts. Okay, back to the text. To grant us, hear the gift, that we being delivered, another gift, from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, if we live our lives before God, and we live them because he has given it to us to live without fear... 
That means that anything that makes us afraid, we think is bigger than the Lord God. It becomes an idol. There are a lot of people who are living with idolatry in their hearts that create fears, that affect relationships, that affect their attitudes. There are families who pass on fear. I've told you the story of my father, the second son of the second son in his family always died, and he was the second son of the second son, and always died before the age of 40. And in the United States, the reality was that most men died before the age of 40, before 1900. And my dear grandfather was murdered before he turned 40. And so my father said when he turned 40 until he went into his, eight, you know, he went through his 80s, he said each day was a great gift. Because he'd been taught to fear that 40th birthday. And God took him way past it, double past it. Some of you may be afraid of things because of the way your family has lived and whatever. But see, what I want to challenge you as your pastor is to think about this. That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That fear can prevent us from serving God in holiness and righteousness. Because something else is in charge of our life that's making us afraid. I think this is a great conversation starter. I think this is a great pastoral concern to make sure that people who... There's a lot of things in our culture that, that, that are driving people to be afraid in ways that they didn't in the past. And what I want to say is you can be free of fear in your relationship with Jesus Christ so that you can serve him. And notice these two words, in holiness and righteousness. In holiness means to be like him. In righteousness, it's to be like him because of what Christ has done. See, we don't often talk about, oh, I want to live a holy life. In the United States, we have this derisive term, oh, they're a holy roller. And that usually is for the Pentecostal side, but it's for people who want to be publicly holy, who raise moral issues publicly. See, is there something in your life or my life that creates fear so that I'm not serving him in holiness and righteousness. Because that's what I'm called to do. And that's what this passage is saying I can do. If God frees you, remember I, it's a double gift in the language there. Maybe you know somebody who needs to hear the message of the gospel that they can have a life without fear. Now, I... We adults, grandparents, parents, need to learn to talk to our children about fear. 
I had fears that I didn't admit until I was in my mid-30s. Because I was a good Christian. Christians aren't afraid. We need to learn how to talk to them so they can talk to us about things that they're afraid of. And and that may mean sharing part of who you are with them so they feel comfortable that, oh, mommy and daddy struggled with fear and so... But don't let your children grow up afraid because that's not what God wants. That's not what Christ wants. The last point. We walk daily in light and peace because in the Lord's mercy we are forgiven. See, 76 says that you, child, are called to be a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. There are a lot of passages that talk about John preparing the way of the Lord. What's he going to do? Listen to this. Verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins Because, hear this word again, of the tender mercy of our God. When you go to pray to God to ask him to forgive you, do you you think that God in his tender mercy is going to forgive you? Do you hear those wonderful words that are used here? Tender mercy. For the forgiveness of their sins. I'm not going to give you the catechism definition of of, of sin, although it's a very helpful one. But when you think about passages like in John 1, 1 John 1, um, that sin is any want or conformity from the law of God. Sin separates us from God. But see, John was to get them ready, and that's what his baptism of repentance was all about, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of their tender mercy of our God. One of the things that happens when you are a new Christian is that you have this awareness that your sins really are forgiven because of Jesus Christ and it's rooted in the word of God. It's just not Fred making a promise. It's God's word in so many places, but here in this text for today, the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins Do you believe that your sins can be forgiven because of Christ? Because he has, what, redeemed us, ransomed us from sin? Because he's paid with his blood the penalty of our sin? One of the things about poetry and in the Psalter thing is how compact you can bring all of these biblical ideas together in simple lines. 
Somebody might ask you, what does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to, to be saved? You think about this line of poetry. The knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. See, see, that's something that sometimes is going to be a stumbling block for people because they, they, they have to realize that I have to be willing to say I have sinned in order to receive salvation. I have to repent. But see, the emphasis in this passage is to give knowledge of salvation to people in the forgiveness of their sins. To really believe that my sins are forgiven, that what Christ did on the cross paid my redemptive price and I am forgiven. Now I'm going to bring children up again. Children learn about forgiveness in the home. Does your child feel like they've messed up and they'll never get you'll never let them forget it? You know, I'm always going to be clumsy, I'm always going to be this, I'm always going to be that, and they have no sense that they can be changed, that they are really forgiven, and that you as a parent have forgiven them because Christ has forgiven you. Not just to teach them a lesson, it's not just to, well, this is what my father, my grandfather, or my mother, or whatever. No. Teach them about forgiveness in the home when they're young so that they don't grow up with what? Fear. They don't grow up fearing like, oh, I'm going to get caught by mom and dad because I know I'm going to screw up. Do you see how the forgiveness of sin helps free us from fear? That it's all tied together in this beautiful song of poetry? And again, it's because of our view of God. Because of the tender mercy of our God. I think I'm going to end it there. This is... To me, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. Well, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to do what I... <laughs> going to read you one more piece of poetry. No, I, I, need, I need a... This is from a famous Old Testament... Christmas passage in Isaiah from Isaiah 9. Because remember in the passage we've been looking at, it talks about darkness, it talks about death. Isaiah 9, beginning to read at verse 2. And there is this long three-page poem that I'm just going to give you the start of. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy as in the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppression, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle triumph, every garment rolled in blood has been burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and evermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Remember how Zechariah ends? We walk in peace. That's why so often peace is in the benediction that I'm going to pronounce. This afternoon, take some time. Go reread that Isaiah 9 passage and, and, and finish it out. See what God promises. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us the word of God. You have given us the message of redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You have moved us from fear to light and peace. Oh, Father, help us to be able to break with the past, break with those memories, those fear-controlling memories that we maybe have lived with for our whole lives, help us to break through with them so that we can walk in your light and your peace, serving you without fear in holiness and righteousness. We pray these things, Jesus, in your most holy name. Amen.